Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. These are mythic times. This is what storyteller and mythologist Martin Shaw said in a recent interview with Emergence magazine. Mythic times. Plagues and pestilence, burning forests, dying ecosystems. Villains so cartoonish they outdo anything ever conceived of in the cartoons. Wastelands of the spirit, weather control, weird times at Walmart. Half the world burns, and half the world seemingly longs for nothing more than an enchanted sleep. We're half awake in our fake empire, as the song goes, floating in an opiated void of digital content and shopping options and comfort and convenience, a spiral of incessant monetization in which digital dollars auto-deduct from imaginary accounts, and some get more imaginary zeros and some less, and some have no zeros at all, zero zeros you could say, and some live in high castles with helicopter pads and golden toilets, and can make worlds appear at their fingertips. And just outside their castle gates, millions of children have no clean water to drink. Try that for a fairy tale. Mythic times. Like all who feel, I've probably longed for that moment of planetary awakening. You know, that that moment where old snakeskins are suddenly shed, and blinking eyes find the morning sun, and marketing executives and stockbrokers rise from their cubicles and proclaim, this doesn't matter, none of this actually matters, and we find the closest meadow and shake free our barnacled hearts and begin the long dance of renewal, and we drink again of clear stream waters, and we turn our faces to the gathering clouds, and turn our hearts to the blue-black center of those clouds, and ask for a real rain to wash it all clean. This time on the podcast, we look at what is asked of us in mythic times, what it means to pass through the crucible of mythic transformation, which sounds like a great ordeal and certainly can be, but not always in the ways we think. Often, it means the simple acts of paying attention and remembering. Remembering, in a chaotic age, who we are and what we want and what we truly long for. Beneath the accumulated crud, the layers of societal detritus. What is life for? What is life for? What stokes the ember of our hearts? When we stand before the swelling tides with one song to sing, what is it? A song of longing, perhaps? Longing for breakthrough, for transformation, for apocalypse, for rain? In these mythic times, monsoon, apocalypse, and what we are truly longing for, today on The Emerald. 
We didn't think they would look like this, these mythic times. The movies made us believe that the apocalypse would be far more sudden and far more chivalrous, that there would be these epic battles to be fought, Godzilla's to be defeated, killer storms to vanquish. We didn't expect the apocalypse to be a series of indignities one after the other. In Star Wars, Han Solo utters the classic line, Bring it on, I'd prefer a straight fight to all this sneaking around. Instead, we find ourselves sitting alone in paper masks, jumping nervously if someone gets closer than six feet from us in the produce aisle. We didn't expect that the apocalypse would come in the form of inertia, a weird, isolated, agitated, collective sleep. This is the great paradox of this age, that it is at once burning with urgency and at the same time numbingly hypnotic, a lull in which we struggle to stay awake, struggle to find the mythic fire in a grind that can seem soulless and leave us longing for a real rain. These are mythic times. To me, that means this. The stakes have never been higher for the planet, for the poor, for the marginalized, for the forgotten. The stakes for each one of us, for each spirit, you could say, perhaps have never been higher either. We're on the verge of fundamentally changing what it has meant to be human for 300,000 years. Every year we're tossing out aspects of planetary and personal experience that are going to be very difficult to reclaim. Genetic manipulation of lifespan, monocropping, biodiversity loss, the inevitable coming fusion of people and machines. It's a good time to remember the cooking fires of our ancestors, how things need to heat with repetition over time, the basic alchemy of existence. It's a good time to remember the little things that are essential to our journey, the stones we collect, the helpers we amass, the feel of moss on our bare feet. It's a good time to remember wounds and initiations, and who we were before we decided that the goal of human existence was comfort, temperature-controlled environments with the least number of variables possible. Is that really what we long for? Comfort. Is that really what we long for? When we hear these are mythic times, it often makes us feel we have to charge off into a battle of some sort, that we must respond to crisis with crisis, that urgency must translate into acceleration. And then we remember how the protagonists of myth deal with mythic times, and it very rarely looks grandiose. It definitely doesn't look rushed, for nothing meaningful comes through rushing. What is the way out of the sorcerer's twin spells of crisis and lull? How do the daughters who serve at the mind-numbing hearths of wicked stepmothers find the way to redemption? It usually involves very simple things, so simple they're easily missed. In the fairy tales, one daughter pays attention and one doesn't. One is present with the forces she encounters, one isn't. One, through her loyalty, diligence, and presence, accumulates helpers. They might be animate beings who speak words of guidance. They might be little scissors or golden spools or magic beans. Vasilisa the Beautiful has a doll that sings and calls the forces of nature for her. Sparrows and little field mice who come to separate corn from stones. Who are our field mice? How do we separate corn from stones? Whatever these helpers are, they're very specific 
and shiny, and they come to kind and patient souls who value presence and who listen. The other daughter, and trust me, I've spent a lot of time with her in the form of earlier versions of myself, the other daughter thinks it's her given right to claim treasure and marry princes. She thinks the world owes her. She doesn't really care about the steps along the way. If something positive happens to her, it's because she deserves it. And if something negative happens, it's because something's wrong with the world. She rides on the convenience of blame. The journey, whatever it is, has nothing to do with her. Her own actions, her own heart, her own mind, how she carries herself with other people. So when she has conversations, she's not really listening because she's already full up on stories she's told herself about the world and how it is. She's already sent three tweets in the midst of that conversation and has explored five different ways to monetize her opinion and is eagerly looking ahead to that moment when she's showered with what's coming to her. But ultimately, what's coming to her, of course, is the direct result of all those little interactions she didn't think were important. The conversation with the apple trees, or the field mice, or with the three heads of the well. Listen, there was a young woman with a wicked stepmother who finally couldn't stand the daily grind, and so she sets out to seek her fortune. She takes only the simplest of provisions with her, but when she encounters an old man seated on a stone at the mouth of a cave who asks her for food, she gladly shares it. Touched by her care, the old man gives her some words to speak to a thorny hedge that lies ahead that will allow her to safely pass through it. He also tells her that beyond the hedge, she's going to encounter a well with three golden heads floating in it, and that she should do whatever they ask. So she goes on, and when she encounters the thorny hedge, she's able to speak to it, and it parts for her. And beyond the hedge, she sees a well, a deep well, deep and clear, deeper perhaps than any well she's ever seen, and floating in those primordial waters, just like the old man said, are three golden heads, and one of them sings out to her, and asks her to draw him up, and bathe him, and to comb his golden hair, and to set him out in the sun. And so she does this, and then the second one asks for the same thing, and then the third, patiently, methodically, carefully, gently washing and combing the golden hair of each head, setting each in the sun. Because of her actions, she's given great gifts, the voice of a nightingale, and unsurpassed beauty, and a fine prince to marry. Word gets around to her stepsister about her good fortune, and the stepsister is jealous, of course, and now she wants to set out and seek her fortune too, and she takes with her all the best provisions, cakes and ale and sweetmeats and cheeses, but when the old man by the cave asked her to share, she doesn't share a bit, not a morsel, and so she never learns to talk to the hedges, and they never part for her, and she gets all scratched up when she tries to pass through, and she staggers to the well to wash her wounds clean and sees three heads floating in the water and is repulsed, and she won't listen to a thing that they say, stopping up her ears to avoid hearing those deep watery voices, and so she ends up cursed, with leprosy and a harsh voice like a corncrake. 
Before we dismiss this as a simple morality tale, it's good to go deeper into its watery heart. We share, we give back, and we are given the gift of being able to interact with the forces of nature as an ally. We encounter voices, voices that call to us from watery depths. And though our tendency may be to recoil when those disembodied heads start asking us to listen to what they have to say, we do it. We pay careful attention. We approach the situation with kindness. We set them out in the sun, bringing everything methodically into the light. If, on the other hand, we hurry, we rush, we don't value each encounter in our lives as an opportunity for presence, as small as it is. If we have ideas about what our fate should look like, certainly not like some old loner sitting in front of a cave, then how do we end up? The stepsister ends up with leprosy, which means she's unable to feel, unable to feel, with a harsh voice that cannot invoke the forces of nature. The path of the stepsister is the path of rushing, of blazing on towards an end that we assume is our right without taking deep time and care that transformation takes. And whether that end we seek is just or not matters very little. We don't get there if we ignore the actual rhythms of nature along the way. So in this vision, the apocalypse is one in which our world is populated with people with harsh voices who cannot feel. Harsh voices who cannot feel. And the mythic call might be as simple as feel reciprocate, pay more attention, cultivate deeper presence, a respect for animacy, deep listening, diligence, and care. Cultivate what Shaw calls loyalty, not mafia movie loyalty, loyalty to humming rhythms that shine There's such urgency these days. And when we feel the urgency of these mythic times, the gnawing fact that something needs to be done, then the path of the youngest daughter in the fairy tales, the path of listening and paying attention, and slowly patiently amassing luminous helpers, and deep respect for the living sapience of all that we encounter, that path gets harder and harder. For in such times we feel crisis, and so we respond urgently. There's no time, we might say. We've got to ride into battle now. So we rush out into the streets, shouting for material change. We shout at the top of our lungs at the halls of power, as we should. These mythic times demand it, right? I think so. But it's also good to remember that myth is a continuum from the inner to the outer. If it doesn't apply equally to us as to the outer world, then it's not mythic. All the street battles and dismantlings of external structures must be accompanied by inner work. Mythic forces, you could say, want us to change. 
So goddess Kali doesn't smash patriarchy. She smashes everything, us included, and worlds change because of our change. There must be an inner aspect, or else the child remains uninitiated, unable to do the adult's job. There must be transformation of the individual heart. Otherwise, a movement risks saying, in effect, you have to change, but I don't. And there are very unpleasant, fractal leafings out from there. Many twisted paths that lead to killing fields of one form or another, to the public burning of scapegoats. For if, for example, you were to magnify your own heart right now to be the size of the world, what would be the state of the world? What would be the state of the world? Would there be wars in your world heart? How would ripples of resentment look when magnified into oceans? Would there be disparity in this world heart? Would all be loved equally? Or would some be shown more favor? Would there be privilege and blame? Who would be sentenced to die in your world heart? Who would be cast out in chains? Would your world heart look a whole lot different than what we have today? I know there would be big problems with mine. I've got a long way to go before I'd consider my own heart to be anything of a model for the world. So, mythic times means we recognize as above, so below. It means we recognize that the movement for change is the movement to transform our own hearts in the midst of forces that would lull us to sleep or would entice us into labyrinths of confusion and blame, in the midst of forces that would seek to construct elaborate palaces of illusion around what it is we really want. What are we truly longing for? In the same interview with Emergence, Martin Shaw speaks about initiation, the potential for times like these as times of initiation. Initiation is the soul longing to be blown out, longing at last for a great release, longing to be subsumed into something greater, the place where children become adults, where, as Shaw translates to us in his new collection of Celtic poems called Cinderbiter, quote, my knee is bent forever, vice ground into peat. If the invitation of initiation isn't the total shattering of who and what we are, then it's not mythic. If it's not inviting us into the cave bear's lair, or to be smashed like a coconut on the altar of the universal goddess, then it's not really getting at the deepest urgency we feel, the deepest longing. One could say we've created a world steeped in external urgencies because we've failed to recognize and honor this deeper urgency, this longing that permeates all human endeavor. And unless we find and honor and are loyal to this true longing, we continue to enact outer urgencies until we reach the point of the greatest crisis of all, apocalypse. So what is it? What is this deep longing? Great thunderclouds swelling on the horizon, what could it be? What could it be that we are longing for? What could it be as the heat rises and the buzz of insects grows more hypnotic each day? Hypnotic as the swishing of the cow's tail, 
as the rhythmic churning of the buttermilk. What could it be? Let's imagine for a moment that all the urgency we feel is really a longing for a real rain. Let me explain. Where I live in the southwestern United States in the high desert, we have a monsoon season every year. It's nothing compared to the monsoon that my friends in India experience, but it is a true monsoon. Mountain-born, stupendous, thunderous. It's also a great cycle of longing and fruition, crisis and release. The heat builds. For weeks, clouds billow and dance but offer no relief. They tug at you, those clouds, literally. There's a magnet at the center of the summer rainstorm, and we are like little filings drawn towards it. Last week, my wife and I and our 14-month-old son and our dog went chasing the monsoon, driving straight into the blue-black clouds, into that humming space on the horizon. You can feel it as it gets closer, the great longing that accompanies the monsoon, the urgency. In India, the cycle of the monsoon spawned great traditions of longing and devotion. The bhakti traditions placed deep value on the cycle of longing and release that is the monsoon, for it is at once a cycle of the natural world that ensures continuity of life, and also a cycle of the heart, of the mind, of the breath, of existence itself, that is embedded in us, longing, crisis, release, longing again. So the bhakti poets sing to the monsoon, invoke the monsoon again and again in songs and poems and devotions. Vrajar Kishore Das invokes an old bhakti text called the downpour of sweetness. In the midst of summer's stifling heat, he says, from out of the blue, a monsoon cloud approaches, hovering majestically low. Do you know that feeling? It is longing itself. Mira, the great Rajasthani devotional singer, sings of this longing, quote, As the Chataka bird pines for the rain cloud, as the fish longs for water, Mira is restless and longs for her separated lover. This vision of the blue-black rain cloud as the divine itself permeates the bhakti songs and poems. For the blue-black cloud is the cycle of build-up and rupture, of longing and its fulfillment. Andal, the 8th-century Tamil teenage poetess, sings, Beloved God of rain, your form is dark as the hue of the primordial lord of the deluge. We have entered the threshold. We sing the glory of the lord dark as the rain cloud. Dew falls upon us as we cling to the threshold of your door. The divine comes, say the poet saints, as this fertile darkness, as torrents of rain. The humming electricity of the thundercloud, the vibratory magnetic space of it, the billowing quality, is longing itself. Here's Andal again. Like drunken bees, his fragrant black tresses upon his shoulders as he plays. Like a great blue-black cloud. 
We saw him there in Vrindavan, garland of fragrant basil gleaming on his form, like a streak of lightning in a dark rain cloud, singing with the cowherds. We saw him in Vrindavan. And finally, after so much build-up, the rain comes. The rupture of the monsoon leads to an overflowing of life-giving waters. The longing each of us feels eventually bursts forth in an apocalyptic moment. Scholar June McDaniel describes this overflow in her book, Madness of the Saints. Quote, The river Yamuna runs in high tides. The trees flow sap. The people cry. The nursing mothers find that their flow of breast milk increases. Nature itself is ecstatic, and the rivers have their hair standing on end, as rising lotuses which blossom in rapture. The trees shed tears of joy in dropping flowers full of honey, and the mountains are melted. The devotees are intoxicated by drinking this love, which makes their feelings soft as butter. It can melt hard hearts, fill dry souls with an ocean of love and cause people to float in seas of joy. The downpour of sweetness describes it like this. The downpour runs off rocky hillsides to form a flooding river rising to rush life-giving moisture to the far corners of the world, renewing the ancient riverbed of divine love in which great souls throughout history have bathed. This is a primal cycle that is as present in the human heart and mind as it is in big bangs and seasonal cycles and in the relationship of the inhale and the exhale. It goes like this. Systems accumulate and they long for a catastrophic release. When grain swells the storehouses, that is the time when sacrifice must happen. For such accumulation must certainly require floods of giving back. The woman's belly swells. The release that comes is one of blood and water. Eventually, there must be a downpour. This downpour, this monsoon, is apocalypse. This is to say that our internal cycles are mirrors of external natural cycles, and that humans always find ways to externally enact internal cycles. These movements of prana, chi, joriki, that are embedded in us, we must enact the cycle of accumulation, rupture, and release over and over again, because it's what we are made of. It's hardwired. Our brains are monsoon brains. Our hearts are monsoon hearts. Our breath is the monsoon cycle. Our organs hum with longing. They function in cycles of buildup and release. There are ruptures and cascades. There are gentle rains of the endocrine system. The spinal cord pulses in its bath of clear fluid. A silver snake dancing in a golden tree, the Egyptians said. The cycles we go through of feeling of love and longing, these are monsoon cycles. During the monsoon are the festivals of divine marriage. Rain is consummation. The Lord at the center of the rain cloud that the bhakti poets are describing is consciousness itself. 
the eternal pulse of longing, crisis, release, regeneration, and longing again. We enact this cycle through ritual. The weathermaker's drums and horns sound and the rain pours. There are ceremonies of flame and milk and ringing bells. The oil flows. We will actualize this apocalypse one way or another. And here's the thing about it. If we don't find and honor this delicious and ultimately life-giving energetic crisis within, then we create it without. Ask yourself this, is it a coincidence that at a time when all the progress metrics show that things in one sense have never been better, that we're more fattened up than we've ever been, sitting comfortably in a world of accumulation, that there is a seemingly conscious drive to utterly destroy ourselves? Why in times of peace are we utterly obsessed with films that depict our end? Is it a coincidence that in a culture that seems on the outside to value comfort above all else, no pain, no inconvenience, we are at the same time enacting the mass ritualized sacrifice of the planet? This is why I say that the sorcerer's spell is a twin spell. It has a facade of hypnotic lull that goes hand in hand with crisis. So, take a Xanax to calm the nerves, and what's the side effect? Anxiety. Adrenaline is followed by exhaustion. Alcohol depresses, and then agitation rises when it wears off. We dutifully follow along a prescribed course of creature comforts and daily grinds, but silently rebel against that spell by enacting crisis. Are you with me? There is a big part of us that longs to be destroyed. Because that longing to be destroyed, ultimately, is a longing to give way for something greater. For fertility, for new beginnings, for seeds to sprout from the ashes of the old, for green rice shoots to rise in the center of the cremation ground. Longing to be destroyed is the drive behind romantic love. It's the drive behind testing ourselves by running longer and longer marathons. It's the drive behind all forms of ritual, behind entheogenic ceremony. It's like calling out, please, get this crazy thinking mind out of my way and just take me. Please, let me be washed in your life-giving rain. Calgon, take me away, the old soap ad went. And it's no coincidence that even in that silly ad, the solution for the crisis of life is a bath in healing waters, a surrender to the waters of the world which take us away. I'm sure the ad agency who was contracted by Reckett Benkheiser didn't know that they were composing a bhakti poem, but they were. Calling for the Lord in the center of the rain cloud, the waters to take us away, is recognizing the primacy of our own longing, our own deep want, and extolling it to come take us, like lovers take each other, like waters take us away. Help me cross the torrent, the Buckton's cry. Show mercy, pleads Mira, and pull me across the oceans of the phenomenal world. The songs of the Alvars, great devotional poets of South India, are compiled in a collection called Hymns for the Drowning. Here's one. 
Our Kanan, our lord, dark as a rain cloud, has stolen my heart. It has gone away with him all by itself. Or this, quote, Sweetness of sugarcane and ambrosia, O dark rain cloud, Krishna, without you I have no existence. Take me. I am a beggar, the Buckdens say. I am wandering, lost, in love, ruined, struggling for a glimpse. Oh, my cowherd, cry the Alvars. Oh, my cowherd, my rough, dark diamond. How will I ever reach you in your world of overwhelming light? How will I ever reach you in your world of overwhelming light? Do you remember this type of longing? Maybe we need to reclaim some of this lost devotion. When do we feel so much? And where do we channel that feeling? What if there was not a stream of products we could buy to satisfy each of our little longings? Where would we turn our longing then? Would we be so prone to external destruction if we regularly practiced and enacted the cycle of longing? When was the last time we sang to the source of our existence like we meant it? As if adrift on an ocean we needed to call winds and calm waters, to exhort the moon to rise to tug at the tides. When was the last time we looked out upon all the rancor of the world and cried to the rain cloud, Save us. Pull us across. Help us. We long to be obliterated, and in our obliteration to be made whole again. Award-winning poet Ocean Vuong might not consider himself a bhakti poet, but there is a whole lot of bhava in his poem Threshold. Here it is. In the body, where everything has a price, I was a beggar on my knees. I watched through the keyhole, not the man showering, but the rain falling through him, guitar strings snapping over his globed shoulders. He was singing which is why I remember it. His voice, it filled me to the core like a skeleton. Even my name knelt down inside me, asking to be spared. He was singing. It is all I remember. For in the body, where everything has a price, I was alive. I didn't know there was a better reason. That one morning, my father would stop, a dark, Colt paused in downpour and listened for my clutched breath behind the door. I didn't know the cost of entering a song was to lose your way back. So I entered. So I lost. I lost it all with my eyes wide open.
for the Bakhtin to lose it all with eyes wide open is in a strange sense the aim of the path, the heart of living life with devotion. To enter a song and lose our way back is the deal the devotee makes with the divine. I'll turn all my attention to you. I'll lose myself in your starry skies, in your swollen rivers, in you, and you will hold me eternally, because nothing else can hold me the way you can. This is a message for mythic times. There is nothing that holds us, that comforts us, that even comes close to surrendering ourselves to the eternal rhythms of nature, to let her will be done, not ours. It is the only safe place for our hearts to reside. We've got to get out of our own way. We've got to turn it over. This is a love pact. A love pact with the world, with existence, with consciousness. This is exactly what is called for in mythic times. We are longing to enact the cycle of crisis, to be taken by great natural forces at once impersonal and deeply personal. We are longing to again be in love with the world. Most intricately, we are longing for that sense of longing never to be lost. We don't want to be eternally comfortable. We want to want. We long to long. And what comes of this real rain, ultimately? What comes with the consummation that the monsoon brings? Here's Mirabai again. Quote, Lightning flashes in black and yellow clouds. The storm is gathering. Frogs, peacocks, and cuckoos all shouting, Drink the nectar of the Lord's name. Give up bad company. Drink the nectar of the Lord's name. Give up bad company. So, all the crisis we enact, this great tumult of transformation in these mythic times, takes us ultimately to the simple place again, the place of recognizing life's cues. Give up bad company, it sounds so simplistic, right? Just like the three heads of the well, it can feel like a morality tale. And then it's like, okay, I get it, do all the right things and be a good person and good things come to you and yada yada yada. But it's more than that. It's mythic work. It's about how the forces and rhythms of nature actually operate. The morality in the stories is inseparable from a form of rapture, of animacy, of reciprocity. The moral transformation that is necessary to save the planet in these mythic times comes from direct experiences of feeling, of longing. It's not an imposed arbitrary code, it's a transformation of the heart. It's what we feel when we honor the cycles of the world, when we honor this longing instead of trying to quell it or let it bottle up into an anxious rush. We feel like living more simply and kindly, with greater presence. This is why the Bucktons, with all their ecstatic clamor and songs of heart-raking anguish, live lives of simple service. I beheld the rain cloud like a mass of sweet, dark mulberry juice. I beheld its cycle, its relationship to all things, and I knew my place in relation to it, and I knew that all things were connected, and I knew, therefore, that all things had value, and from this I knew harmony, and I wanted all to be able to live in harmony, and I knew the way to do that 
was through simplicity and presence. This is where morality ultimately comes from. So if we were to say that what is missing in these mythic times is a basic sense of morality, that's not as dry as it sounds. In fact, it's brimming with mulberry juice. Morality and rapture go together very closely. We are morally starved in this externally generated apocalypse because we don't feel. We are removed from the longing cycle of the rain cloud. We don't have systemic ritual structures in which people can feel their basic unity, can feel for one another, can pass through storms and feel redemptive rains bristle our skins together. In Vrindavan, the heart of the bhakti traditions, the people greet each other by saying Rade Rade, invoking Radha, the village girl who's the lover of the divine, which is a way of saying Rade Rade. It's a way of saying we all love the same thing. We all love the same beloved. We've all felt the love that is at the source. So what are we called to do in mythic times? love. Not in an amorphous way, not in a vague way, rather the love of the youngest daughter of the fairy tales, with diligence and care and presence. The love of Andal, who channels all that adolescent longing towards the timeless cycles of nature itself. This love pact honors longing, urgency, the rashness we sometimes feel, and anchors it to timelessness, anchors it to slow, methodical, ritual cycles that are in tune with being. In the opening chapter of the great devotional epic, the Bhagavata Purana, the poet sage Narada laments the state of the world, specifically the emphasis on accumulation and hoarding, which leads human beings, as he says, to lose their sense of discernment and become dull and foolish. And, you know, he's talking 1,500 years ago. <laughs> One can only assume we've become more dull and foolish since. While he laments, he encounters a woman seated on the banks of the sacred river. She's beautiful, but she's pale and sickly, as if no one has paid attention to her for a very long time. As wan as a wilted lotus, the text says. She's weeping inconsolably. Narada comforts her and asks her name. And she replies, Bhakti. Her name is devotional love. Her name is longing, and no one has paid attention to her for a very long time. She is asking for our attention in these mythic times. She's asking for our attention. At the end of things, say some of the stories, at the time of the great apocalypse, the Mahapralaya, the dissolution of the universe itself, there comes a cleansing rain. There is a dancer, and when it is time, there is a great and primordial dance. And through that dance, the earth and the great mountains begin to shake. 
and then crumble into a fine powder. And all the solid constructs we held so dear, all the mental architectures that seem so necessary and permanent and essential to our being, exhale themselves away. And the rains come. And the fine powder washes away in rivulets and streams. Persistent, seeping, gentle, strong. The rain washes away all those places we resisted. All the places we held on. All the places we were right. All the places we hid and resigned ourselves and told ourselves we weren't adequate. And the places we exaggerated and inflated into something other than what they were. All are washed away in cleansing rain. The bones and deep tissues of the cosmos melted by the rain. And then a fire burns, anything that remains, burns it to the finest, finest ash. And then a timeless wind, a void wind, scatters the ashes until all is ringing ether. And then silence pervades. Silence pervades for immeasurable time. From the silence, there is a faint stir, a coalescence. Mystery of mysteries, a, a golden point condenses. From it, I don't have to tell you, from it will come a whole new birth, a new world, a new thought, a new inhalation. And what stirs that thought into being? Longing. Longing. This episode contains reference to many books, articles, movies, etc. These include Antal and her Path of Love by Vidya Dehegia, To Dance in the Downpour of Devotion by Vrajar Kishore Das, Star Wars, directed by George Lucas, Fake Empire by the band The National, I hope you never have to deal with their manager, Mystic Songs of Mira by V.K. Subramanian, Cinderbiter, Celtic Poems by Martin Shaw, Madness of the Saints by June McDaniel, Martin Scorsese's film Taxi Driver, Namalvar, Hymns for the Drowning by A.K. Ramanujan, the Bhagavata Purana, there's a story-like translation by Ramesh Manan, the poem Threshold by Ocean Vuong, Three Heads of the Well, a classic English fairy tale, Vasilisa the Beautiful, a classic Russian fairy tale, and of course, Martin Shaw's recent interview with Emergence magazine, I highly recommend it. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. That's patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as $6 per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. 
And until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. Thank you.